So we are starting a new chapter today, Luke chapter 3. If you've got a Bible or uh, have one you can use on your phone, something to get up in front of you, and I encourage you to do so. Find Luke chapter 3 this morning. <clears throat> so last week we, we learned about Jesus at 12 years old and the way he was dialoguing in the temple with, with the leaders there. And today we're going to jump ahead about 18 years uh, so that Jesus is around 30 years old. <clears throat> but our focus today isn't exactly on Jesus, which sounds a little weird. Um, it's actually on his cousin John, who, who God called to prepare the way of Jesus. Um, John the Baptist, or as I've always enjoyed calling him during my life, JTB, uh, is one of my favorite people in all of history. I'm not just talking church history, but history. Uh, he lives his adult life out in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair. He would eat locusts and, and honey, presumably dipping it into the honey. Uh, and as we see today, he doesn't really care when he speaks um, what people think of it. Uh, he's so committed to the truth of what, what God has for him to say that, that he's not real concerned about what people think of him. Uh, and, and so eventually that's going to end up getting him killed. And Luke's gospel doesn't cover it real detailed. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the way his life ends up going at the end. Uh, Herod, who was uh, like a governor, was, was having an affair with his brother's wife, uh, a woman named Herodias. Uh, and John went and called Herod out for that sin. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. And, and then on, on Herod's birthday, uh, Herodias' daughter from, from the other, her other marriage performed this dance for him as a, as a way of celebration. And Herod was so impressed by this dance that he said, I'll, I'll give you anything you want. And, and the mother, Herodias, who's part of the one being condemned by the words of John, says, you know what? Ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And Herod actually delivered on that promise and brought it to her. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, you, you look at the story and the way his life goes, and we see that this you know, incredible quality of dancing is actually what led to the death of John the Baptist, which kind of explains why, why Baptists for so many years considered dancing to be sinful. Not really. <laughs> um, <clears throat> before we do get started, though, I, I'll confess one more thing about John the Baptist related to my life. When I was in college at Texas A&M, I was so intrigued by John the Baptist and his living in the wilderness and, and stuff that, uh, you know, all these details about him, but mostly that glorious statement of his in John 3.30 where, where he says, uh, you know, and this could be an anthem of all Christians. He says, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he had that so Christ-central view of his life. And I was so impressed by him that in, in college, as I'm still a relatively young believer, uh, I decided that I'm going to do what I call JTB week. I'm going to go and live out in the wilderness like John the Baptist did. And so I set up a tent in a, in a, a, uh, a park. It's basically the equivalent to like Annenberg here in town. And just had a tent in this public park that I decided I was going to sleep out there in the, in the wilderness for a week with nothing but a, a Bible and a flashlight and a journal and a disc man. You young people have no idea what that is, but it played music. Um, and it was one of the most terrifying and wonderful experiences of my life. Um, but I never did it again because it was so weird to be in a park like that. Uh, anyway, though, uh, let's get to our passage. We're, we're going to take it in three parts today because I want you to kind of see it unfold in the way that, that it does, really. So uh, beginning in verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at 7 through 9, and then finally 10 through 14. So follow along as I, I read this first portion, uh, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of uh, Ateria and Traconus, 
and, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Almighty God, your plan of redemption has been unfolding long before any of us here even existed. Thank you for caring for who we are. You know, the, the, the we who are made in your image. And though we are sinful and sinful, you care for us. And we thank you. Thank you for John the Baptist who was honored to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. God, teach us from this passage today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so Luke, right off the bat, ends up naming uh, five Roman leaders and, and two high priests. Now, there was only one high priest at any time, and uh, the situation there is that uh, Annas was actually retired, but still there, and people knew him, and a lot of people still considered him the high priest. But Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the actual uh, priest at the time. Now, the, the reason all these names are listed here for, for two main reasons. First is this. This story that we're reading about is actual history. And so it's grounded in the reality of a political situation and an actual time in history. If you were to sort through these names, right? We won't go and do that in this detail right here. But if you were to sort through these names using other historical books from the time, you learn that this is basically around 27 AD that he's talking about. And this man, Licinius, here is a particular interest because for many years, liberal theologians looked at the scriptures and said, it's wrong. Luke is wrong. Because this guy was not uh, actually the, the governor of, of Abilene at that time. He ruled Abilene in 37 BC, which is about 60 years ahead of this time, uh, is what they were saying. However, in the, in the last 50 years of archaeology, one of the things that has been discovered over and over again is, is this numerous inscriptions referring to a second Licinius who ruled Abilene during this time when Jesus was there. And so it's this beautiful way of showing, yeah, Luke is incredibly detailed and incredibly accurate in all the things that he lists in this book related to history. And we can trust him in everything else that he lists here as well. And so then the second thing that we learn with these names is that, that God comes to his people at a particularly dark time in history. This, this leaders here, if you look through it, it's, it's almost like a, a who's who's list of bad guys at the time. And we look at that, and I just want you to think about that in terms of that we don't ever allow our current situation to lead us to believe that God can't bring about wonderful things in that time. Now, when verse 2 here says that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, it's establishing that John is a great prophet of the Lord, right? One of these unique people set apart for this purpose. And then in verse 3, Luke summarizes the entire ministry of John the Baptist in, in one phrase. Look in, in verse 3. What's it say he's doing? He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's John's ministry to a T right there. Repentance. That's the major theme of everything he does. Now, in God's good providence, we, we find ourselves in this passage just three days between a really significant holiday. Raise your hand if you know what the holiday is coming up next Wednesday. Just shout it out. What's the holiday? 
that's what you think, right? Uh, yeah, uh, but it's also Reformation Day. Did you know that? Uh, I knew you were going to go that way because that's what we all do, right? Uh, Reformation Day, that's the day when we all dress up in costumes and wander around our neighborhood and we threaten retribution against them if they don't give us candy, right? No, that's Halloween. Uh, so anyway, Wednesday is, is Halloween, and that's a wonderful way to meet your neighbors and be out in the neighborhood. But October 31st is also the day that as Christians, we celebrate the first spark of the Reformation. And, and the reason is, is that on October 31st, 1517, there was a, a monk, a German monk named Martin Luther, who took these 95 theses, these list of things that he kind of objected that, that had happened, how the church had gotten away from the gospel and scripture, and he nailed it to a door of a church in Germany in order that it could be discussed, in order to try to correct things. Now, you, you likely know that included on that list is, is the, this return to a biblical doctrine of justification, that, that you are saved by grace through faith. That's, that's the most significant one. It's the one we almost all know when we think of Luther, uh, the most famous one. But, but do any of you know what the very first of these 95 theses says? You don't have to say it out loud, but raise your hand if you happen to know it off the top of your head. I, I didn't know this until recently. So, you know, none of you did, by the way, in case you're wondering. Um, <clears throat> Luther wrote this. The very first one he says is, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so he's getting to this, this same issue. John, John the Baptist could have written that. Matthew 3, 2 records John's actual words that he says in our passage here. Uh, records him word for word. And, and what John says is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's whole ministry then is about preparing the way of Jesus with, with this call to repentance. And not just repentance in the sense of empty words, right? I'm sorry. But repentance to the very core in all of life, which, which we'll see better in our second portion today. Um, before we get there, though, I do want to touch on this, this quote from Isaiah and John's baptism. First of all, this quote is a paraphrase that comes from uh, uh, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, which is right after the, uh, the thing we say right after we read the Scripture, right? That the Word of God remains forever. Um, but, but this picture here is designed to, to paint this glorious image of preparation for the coming of a king to a city. Okay? Only in this case, instead of a, a king, an earthly king, verse tells us that it's the Lord himself who is coming. And you see, in, in those days when they were preparing for a king, they would send someone ahead of them. And, and part of their job was to literally prepare the roads, right? Roads weren't like we have today. And so they would prepare these roads into this particular city. And the idea was that he could go unhindered into the city, that they would fill in the holes and remove trees that might have fallen across the way and things of that nature to make sure that transportation was easy. And so this picture is this poetic image on, on a much larger scale. Right? We're not talking potholes and trees anymore. Uh, you see, instead of holes being filled, valleys are filled. Instead of rocks and trees being leveled, mountains are leveled. All this in preparation uh, you know, was done for an earthly king so that the people of the city would be able to actually see their king when he comes into their presence with their own eyes. The preparation that, that John has been called to do is, is so that all people will see the salvation of God so that we may see the Lord Jesus. And so to prepare the way of the Savior, John's calling the Israelites to repent of their sin. Not, not because repentance causes forgiveness. 
It, it doesn't. Only the redemptive work of Jesus Christ can give us forgiveness. But, it, but he calls them repentance because we're, we're only prepared to look to Jesus with faith for the forgiveness of sins when we truly know that we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. Just like we only look for medicine to heal us when, when we're convinced that we're sick and actually need that medicine. And so this, this call to true repentance is, is John leveling mountains. It's John filling valleys. It's, it's making crooked paths straight so that God's covenant people are prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ, their Savior. Now, remember the, the Jews at this time... They had this idea of who the Messiah was. They were expectant for a Messiah, but they wanted the Messiah to be this political leader with military power, and he was going to save them from their enemy, which is the, the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome. But, but the Messiah was really coming to free them from their ultimate enemy of sin. And, and instead of political freedom, he was accomplishing this, this freedom from sin. He, he's got to change their perspective to know what God is doing here. So let's, let's talk a little bit about John's baptism. First of all, this can confuse you when you look at it. You've got to understand that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. That, that's not established until after Christ's resurrection. And, and so at this time, you've you got to understand the context in which this baptism is given. And at this time, baptism was only administered to Gentiles, not Jews, to Gentiles who wanted to be included in God's covenant people. And, and part of that, and so if they converted to Judaism, uh, Judaism, they were asked to actually have this baptism. And the idea was this, the Jewish people were God's people and naturally clean, right? Uh, unlike the Jews, though, the Gentiles were seen as an unclean person. And so they had to be ceremonially cleansed, cleansed through this, this baptism. What, what John's doing that's so incredibly significant here is, is that he's out in the wilderness and he's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jewish people. He's making clear to them that they too are unclean. They are sinful. They need repentance. They need forgiveness. They need a Savior. And John is out there and he's all about removing whatever's in the way of them receiving salvation, receiving the Lord when he comes. And so now I want us to read the second portion of our passage. And as we do so, I want you to think about this. Uh, you know, think about... The way John the Baptist serves God's purpose is wonderfully, right? But I think you're going to see here that um, he would have been a terrible public relations person for any 21st century uh, America company. You're probably going to love it, but if you knew him in real life, I don't know that you'd really like John that way. Anyway, uh, let's pick up in verse 7 here. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Not exactly seeker-sensitive, is he? My, my first thought when I would read this is think John is the very worst evangelist ever ever who says that I mean can you imagine if we had some outreach event and and an opportunity to to to, to, to speak to people and Travis stands up and says something like we're glad you're here you horrible wretched worms now let's stand and worship the Lord you know something like that 
So, so here's the deal that's going on. Um, yes, John's a little blunt, a little rough, but he's not speaking to outsiders, right? He's not. He's speaking to fellow covenant community members. He's speaking to Jewish men and women who need to be awakened from their general apathy and their covenant entitlement. At the heart, John cares about these people. Even more than that, I think he cares about the ministry that God has called him to do. And too often in our current era, we as Christians, if we're honest, care more about being liked than we do about the truth of Scripture. Or about the souls of our friends, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That's not to say we should be rude. Don't hear this and think, be rude to everyone, right? Um, you know, the truth and love. You know, there's no reason to be needlessly offensive. But it may be good to ask ourselves before and after conversations we have, the question that Paul, you know, asked himself in Galatians 1.10 when he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I seeking to please man? See, this is important because I, I think we all desire to be servants of Jesus. And, and so we must conclude what Paul concludes in the second part of that Galatians 1.10 verse when, when he says this. Listen, he says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he puts those things against each other. In, in other words, we, we can't truly have two masters here. And what we find then is that, that speaking the truth in love in our current cultural climate may not always feel like you are speaking the truth in love. It might not always feel like you're being loving and kind and caring. The truth in love may not always be received well because sometimes the truth just, just hurts. Now on top of that, John's insult isn't just an insult. It's not like just saying you wretched worms or something like that. There, there is an image, an intentional aspect to the image of the vipers fleeing this fire here. The, the, the idea in this statement is that many of these Israelites are seeking to escape judgment. That's the fire. But they're not truly changing at the core. That, that, that's to say they're still vipers, unchanged at their, at their heart. They're just hoping to avoid the judgment of God, or, or the way that John puts it in his passage here, the wrath of God to come. In simple terms, then, they wish to escape the judgment of God, but at the heart, they also desire to just keep living the same evil way they had always been living. They keep pursuing sin and loving sin. Their, their words of repentance are, are spot on, but their hearts are not contrite. Their, their repentance is not genuine. They, they still love and seek after sin that they claim to be repenting of. And, and this shows up many places, I think, in our own hearts as well. It, it might be that our hope and forgiveness is, is simply in having prayed some sinner's prayer at some event, and yet our desire is still for sin and, and not for the Lord. It, it might be that you're not really fighting sin in your life. And instead, you're just content to, to hide it from people, those closest to you, in fact. It might be that you're, you're, you're trusting in your associations, your, your baptism, that you're a member in a, a church, that, you know, your whole family of Christians. And those are all wonderful blessings of the Lord. They really are, but, you know, the blessings for your faith. But, but don't replace, they don't replace true faith in Jesus Christ. So I'll ask you, you know, so is Jesus where your hope truly is? 
Does your life reflect that or does your life refute that? We see here in verse 8 then that the Israelites tended to look to their being born into the people of God as if that was the only thing that mattered for their forgiveness. Right? Abraham is our father. That's what what they want to say. And John's telling them, don't even start that argument with me. It's like he knows where they're going to go and just don't even begin that. And he tells them, you know, God doesn't need you. Not, not even your, your praise. And the reason is that God is God. He, he, he can raise up children from these stones all around us if, if he so desires. He's telling them, well, well, God does not need you. You need God. You need his mercy. You need the forgiveness and, and the new heart and the Holy Spirit and all that God brings us in Christ. All the things that only God can provide. He then drives home this warning with this, this image of a tree being chopped down at the root, right? At the very root. We're not talking about pruning here. It's, it's judgments what the picture is. That, that's what the fire represents. And, and John tells them that judgment is imminent. Later in John 8, 39, the, the Pharisees are going to make the, the same statement, the argument to Jesus, right? That Abraham's our father, Jesus. And Jesus replies to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, in all this, this talk, I don't want you to get confused with, with the way they're speaking about good works here. Uh, both John the Baptist in our passage and Jesus later on, you know, they, they keep pointing that way. The, the good works are not the cause or the reason or the means that anyone is redeemed from their sin. The good works are the result of God creating true faith in the heart of an individual. It's as John put it there in verse 8, right? The bear fruits in keeping with repentance. As Luther made clear in that that first thesis, that true repentance is more than just words. It is a turning away from sin and and a turning to God. And and, and when that's real, there is fruit. There is actual life change. Friends, if I I told you that, uh, if I just knocked on your door and I told you, you know that bur oak tree out in your front yard? I have turned that into a Granny Smith apple tree. And then I put a little sign on it that said Granny Smith Apple Tree in front of it, right? Um, I know you'd think I was crazy, but the way you'd really be able to test if, I, you know, if it had really become an apple tree is when you saw the fruit of apples ripening on its branches. You'd have real good reason to doubt and question if it continued to grow nothing but acorns. And so a life that shows the fruit of the Spirit is how we observe in ourselves and in others true repentance and true faith in the Lord. And this is not to say that Christians don't sin. We do. God knows we do. Your family knows you do. Your friends know you do. Your neighbors know you do. Strangers know that you sin. But we confess that sin and we repent of our sin with contrite hearts and then we rest in the mercy of God. And so then John is, is calling them vipers here, is, is this calling them to, to true repentance, to, 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 just, you know, to just shut down this lame argument that, that, that Abraham is your father, right, from some biological sense. And then he warns them of God's wrath. Now, I get the feeling that if, if the same thing were to happen to most of us, it, it might not go well, Right? And by us, I mean Christians talking to within the covenant community. I wonder if we'd be asking belittling questions. Who is this crazy man? Who cares what he says? You know, why should we listen to him? Who is he to call us out for sin? 
I mean, things of that nature to belittle him. And, and honestly, how, how do you think you'd respond to this sort of, uh, of statement calling you out for your, your sin and your need for true repentance? I mean, really, the question is, do you, do you want to be corrected and redirected if you are living in a way that's not honoring to the Lord? Do you really want that? Do you? I'll tell you, in years past, when I read this, I honestly just thought that the crowds, the people there, were kind of pathetic. A bunch of hypocrites, uh, you know, and, and I was missing something. I was missing the, the, the response that we're going to see in a minute because uh, you've you got to see that God is at work in some of them. And we know this by the question that they ask in response to that. Because we do. We expect them to maybe be angry and to, to push it off. So, so let's read starting in verse 10 here. And we'll, we'll finish it on to the end of the chapter or the end of our section anyway. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Right? They're, They're hearing this warning, and they're asking, What shall we do? They lean into the correction. Some of these people had hearts prepared to repent and, and they just embraced this, this statement. What, what, what do you think then of, of John's response to that question, what shall we do? I don't, I don't know that if we didn't read ahead that any of us could have guessed what his response would have been. You know, we, we, we might have expected him to ask them to do some, some act of penance, right? That, you know, go and feed orphans somewhere. Do, go do that. Or, or maybe expected them to... Uh, to push them to some greater involvement. Go, go back to your town and get involved in the synagogue and just be committed there. Or, or he might have sent them to you know, pray in a certain way or a certain place. But, but, but John's answer at the heart is, is really a question of, of ethical. Be ethical. Change the way you treat other people. That's kind of odd. It's just not what we expect. Uh, he, he applies it then to these three groups. The, the crowd is told to give their extra tunic to, to those who need one. If you don't know, a tunic's a, a type of clothing that was, was worn underneath your main stuff. But uh, at this time, clothing is expensive. We, we can't just compare it to us giving our clothing away. And, and notice he's not asking them, if you have ten tunics, and one of them's old and kind of worn out, give that to someone in need. Um, you know, but, but, but give your only other tunic away. It's actually a really big thing he's asking them to do. And they're to treat food in the same way. Uh, the notoriously dishonest tax collectors are instructed to be honest with their clients. Uh, the soldiers were not paid well at this time, and as a result, they would often threaten people to get more money. And it was, it was one of those things that they just did, right? It would have been easy to say, well, this is, this is how everyone in the industry does it. I know it's not right, but it's how we do it. But, but John instructs the soldiers to not abuse their power, their authority. Instructs them to be content with what they are paid. John applies it then to those three groups. that We, we can apply it to our lives today as well. Did, did you notice that every single one of these is, is related to money? Finances of some level? Uh, Philip Ryken says money has great spiritual power, both for evil and for good. And what we do with our wealth reveals our true priorities. And he goes on to say our, our budgets and bank accounts are leading indicators of our spiritual health. So John is showing us how self-serving or, or generous we are with our money and possessions is a clear indicator of how we are 
where we are spiritually in our lives. See, the people he's talking to, all, all of them, not all of them, many of them at least, lacked generosity, which is a spiritual heart issue. And you ask, you know, what, what about us? My, myself included. These have been challenging questions this week. Are, are, are we generous with our possessions? Do we share our homes, our cars, our clothing, our food with others? Here's the kicker, though. Do we do it joyfully? Do, do we enjoy giving to family and friends and more significantly to, to those indeed? Do, do, do we give regularly and sacrificially to the, to the Lord and to his church? Do, do we trust that God really will provide for us even if we're generous? I mean, it's good for us to ask these heart-probing questions. And, and again, not as a means of earning God's forgiveness. Never. Never. The, the gospel is a, is a gift of grace. But, but just to evaluate if, if we need to repent in our own hearts and, and reorient our lives in a way that, that centralizes God where he belongs, in the center. Uh, so just one more thing today and we'll be done. Uh, as God's covenant people, we know that, that Jesus is returning. Okay? Either before you die, I die, or some point after we die, Jesus is returning. And the question is, how do, how do we prepare for that? How, how do we prepare for the coming of our King, our Lord? I'll say it's a, a similar way. We, we repent, truly repent as often as we sin. And we believe the gospel. We believe all that Jesus has done for us, accomplished for us, and then we rest in that. We rest in all that Jesus is for us. Let's pray. Lord God, would you make us as bold as John the Baptist? Would you give us wisdom to know what the truth and love looks like? We, we have strong desires not to offend others, and they come from a right perspective that we, we want to appeal with the gospel, Lord. So would you give us wisdom in that area? God, would you make us as confident in the truth and the necessity of the gospel for ourselves and, and for everyone who lives on this planet today? Lord, as we go from here in a bit today, we ask that you would renew our love for you, our triune God, renew our desire to live generously in the, in the newness of Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, and for the glory of God the Father. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.